the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back. As we discussed yesterday, we usually have Hugh and Lewis Hallman in on Tuesdays, but uh, Hugh is doing some unusually uh, heavy travel, and he joined us yesterday. But today we get uh, Lewis Hallman. Lewis Hallman is in the studio. Welcome back, Lewis. Always a delight, Seth. Thank you. You are the manager. Uh, the, um, tell us. Tell the audience who you are. Uh, I am the managing director of Insight That's Analytics and a professional amateur. There you go. Uh, managing director of Insight Analytics. InsightAnalyticsLLC.com is the website. I don't know why I st- stumbled on managing director. I usually rattle that right off. But, uh, <laughs> oh, nobody told me there'd be days like these. 602 if you uh, want to get in on the conversation. First, Lewis, uh, let's just talk about a few things that are surfacing at um, – at 50,000 feet here, but that uh, affect us on the ground. We just got off the phone um, with a guest who was talking about, uh, you know, deplatforming, uh, tech censorship, um, perhaps some need to uh, regulate uh, social media. Um, and it strikes uh, a little bit, or at least initially, ab initio, against certain libertarian impulses. We all share some to greater and some to lesser degrees, but it does initially. Uh, run into some of those libertarian concerns, um, and I, I was, you know, I, you're 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 of a younger generation than I am. I would love to know what you think when we think about these kinds of things. Well, uh, I do lean pretty heavily libertarian, but I am not a libertarian to the exclusion of all things, and so, you know, there, there's a, a point at which one, one might rightfully criticize libertarians for for being. Uh, perhaps allergic to any form of regulation, right, or any form of public utility or any form of public invention. Um, I'm not that kind of libertarian, and I'm I'm not that kind of conservative. Um, you know, the there really is, I, I think, a, a proper place and a proper amount of regulation. You know, we, we want to keep it low. We don't want an onerous state that is breathing down our necks and inhibiting commerce. But if you study economics... There's this idea of regulation to fight uh, what are called um, externalities, right? To, so if, if, for instance, cl- pollution is the classical example of this. If you've got an industry that, that imposes a cost on other people, like environmental pollution, that you then don't have to bear, it is reasonable and perhaps proper for the state or some other external force to regulate you or tax you and make you pay for the cost of the externality that you impose on others. And as, as your guest was saying in the last hour, quite rightly, you know, Google is within the margin of error of being able to swing elections. That is a terrifying externality for a free society. And so while it's not abundantly clear to me what form precisely these regulations ought to take, right, are there certain scale parameters, right, no companies under you know, a million active users a month or, or, or potentially it's revenue related. You know, there are a lot of different levers that we could pull on. But but to me, that's not as much the question as should we pull on any of the levers? And I think, you know, 
there is a really bipartisan disquiet about the nature of the influence that Silicon Valley has been able to amass to itself over the last two decades. And I really think that careful, controlled regulation to put more of the American people in the driver's seat, their thoughts, their opinions, rather than the thoughts and ideas of a centralized actor, I think would be very worthwhile. You know, that was kind of the originating animus, uh, uh, excuse me, the original animating feature of the Internet, social media, which, you know, came from from it a little bit later, was to give everyone their platform and everyone their say-so and everyone their ability to examine and discover the truth news or truth or facts for themselves, the researchability, the open access to information. That really was the animating feature uh, when it all started. Um, I don't know how many people, you probably would, or at least I'm sure we could find them, how many people were warning that this could be a Frankenstein's monster at some point or, or a revolution that eats its own children, perhaps, another way to look at it. I don't know if many people were saying that circa 94, 95, 96, 97, or even maybe in the aughts when Facebook came about uh, and, of course, the Google search engine long before that. I don't know how many people were raising those warning flags, but that was the original point. It was an extremely libertarian ethos and ethic that was running Silicon Valley, extremely so. And then it became partisan, and it didn't just become partisan. It became more than partisan. It became hardened ideologically. Right. Partisan. So one of the things that's weird about this to me, right, everyone kind of brings up that older Internet, right, the the, the weird sort of – days of the internet where, where anyone could post anything. I remember there was really days. not I'm a old lot of enough to rem- I'm not <laughs> I'm old enough to remember those. One of the things I, I don't know that we could we could get that genie back into the bottle, as it were. Right? One of the one of the reasons I think that the internet was like that in the first place was that you know the scale wasn't really there. The user base was not nearly as large. You were if you were terminally online, you were probably you know, a, a very specific kind of person rather than a, a general, you know, the, the whole general population. Now, we're all online. But the, the, you're, but you're this, totally right. I mean, it was you, you had to convince older people to do it, right? right. It well, well, this kind of reminds me of, of the idea that, you know, even in, in the most democratic of forums, like a town hall, for instance, you still have an elite spontaneously emerge. Someone has to set the agenda. Someone, you know, takes the minutes of the meeting. And so you still get a spontaneous... Uh, just, unjust, hard to say, power dynamic emerge right even at what we think is the most democratic of institutions. And so I think the Internet in some sense is kind of like that, where now there are so many players involved. There's so much infrastructure involved. You know, we've had first movers advantages, you know, be distributed. Where now I don't know that you could recapture that kind of egalitarian do whatever you want kind of ethos because now there are so many of us online and there's so much interest in the internet and and in online activity that I don't know that the that you could rewind the moral ethic you know one of the things that kind of blends a couple of these thoughts together a couple of these examples that we're talking about uh, I don't know if you remember in 2004 60 minutes then with Dan Rather did I was 11 it. in 2004, so right, I may not. But, yeah, okay, all right. Now you're now you're hitting a pet peeve of mine because I don't know how old you were when Abraham Lincoln was president, but don't tell me you don't know much about Abraham Lincoln or Ulysses S. Grant or the Beatles. 
<laughs> All right, stop with that. What? What? what I, I know two. I know two out of three. I know. Stop, I know, I know Lincoln, Grants, the Beatles. I don't know very well. I have to. Yeah, you know Wings, but not the Beatles. I get it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Stop with that. Don't get me on that whole millennial thing. Don't. You, Sorry, Seth. Yeah, don't uh, you don't like me? <laughs> okay, uh, right. Don't get me on that. Don't get me started on all that. You could ask me about uh, the Arizona Cardinals lineup. Don't get me started. All right. Um, in 2004, uh, Dan Rather uh, was doing CBS 60 Minutes, and he put together what was a hit job on George W. Bush mm-hmm. running for reelection by using faked Airsats manufactured letter. Um, about him getting out of Vietnam by getting preferential treatment to go into the National Guard. Mm -hmm. You may remember this. And a couple burgeoning websites slash blogs, the most prominent among them, the Powerline blog, uh, put it out there and said something doesn't look quite right about this letter. And, you know, they crowdsourced it unintentionally. They started getting feedback. America's a big country. People have a lot of interesting hobbies. Who knew? Some people collect old typewriters. And the people that had typewriters from that year, whatever it was, 1970, 1971 maybe, they – Wrote back to Powerline and they did it with all the evidence they could amass, you know, with the pictures. and That font didn't exist. That letter could not have been written by that typewriter because the font didn't exist. And Dan Rather, sounding a lot like James Clapper, was maintaining the veracity of his story as the story all around him and everywhere was crumbling. And the exec said, you got to go. And he was fired. He was some say maybe the first scalp attributable to uh, to the internet, or at least to uh, to uh, to to a blog, the blogosphere. Interestingly enough, that was a big deal. Then you could replicate almost nearly the same exact thing. You did it with Hunter Biden's laptop. There would be no consequence. Dan Rather was just too maybe ahead of his time. If he was responsible <laughs> for mismanaging uh, the response to the Hunter Biden story, or covering it up, or lying about it, or censoring people, he'd still have his job. He'd have his job if he did then what he did today. It's kind of an interesting turn. That's kind of the ideological race we have taken on this sort of thing. Can we go to the quick break and pick up on that when we come back? I'd love to. I'm Seth. He's Lewis. 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Is that a reverse Mondegreen? Are those lyrics made up? I think they are. I think so. That makes it a reverse Mondegreen. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, portions of which are brought to you by the good people of Balance of Nature, whole produce fruits, whole produce veggies. I mean, it's just pure, potent plant power. It's the only whole food supplement with no additives, fillers, extracts, synthetics, pesticides, or added Sugar. I take it every single day. I've been doing so for about three years. It has kept my immunity boosted and me well for those three years. It's all the good stuff you would want. Papayas, bananas, wild blueberries, grapefruit, cranberries. That's just sweet cherries. That's just tart cherries. That's just a sampling on the fruit side, on the veggie side. You get everything from kale and white onion and zucchini and shiitake mushrooms and wheatgrass to celery and spinach. It's the best. I just everyone who has started on it because of our say so has equally said how much they love it to me. And it doesn't take a long time for you to notice the effects. I mean, you are putting 
potent fruit and veggies in your body, you'll notice something within the next, uh, you start it, you'll notice something within about two days. Yeah, that's what I'd say, about two, three days at most. Balanceofnature.com, their fruits and veggies. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Balanceofnature.com for boosted immunity, maintained health. Discount code BALANCE. Lewis Hallman is my in-studio guest, as he is every third hour on Tuesdays. Delightful to have you. Um, picking up on where we left off on that Dan Rather situation in 2004, where he lost his job for trying to interfere in an election from the purchase of CBS, we're not going to see any of that here with the Hunter Biden uh, laptop suppression story, though it very clearly, I think, altered an election. We have data from the Media Research Center saying that of the Biden voters – who did not know about that story, 9% of them in the swing states would not have voted for Biden had they known that story. That would have been enough to change the election. That would have given Donald Trump 311 electoral college votes. So whatever people want to investigate and work on and talk about or think about with regard to other election irregularities or, 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 or fraud, that one's right there staring us in the face, uh, what social media did and what the apparatuses at CNN and the intelligence agencies did. But I don't know that Dan Rather would have lost his job today. None of them are losing theirs. There seems to be no accountability. About all this, you had an interesting thought. Sure. So one of the things I would note on that is that it's perhaps easier uh, and more productive for the kind of decentralized rebuttal that actually revealed that that claim to be a hoax. You know, the Internet is very, very powerful for that kind of work. Um, now, you, you'd said something else that was very interesting that, uh, well, that, that he hadn't lo- – that he lost his job then and he hadn't now – but I don't think he would now, yeah, right, just right, based right. on the fact that no one else is losing theirs for yeah. Well, what's what's sort of interesting about that to me is that you know as far as the technological change we've seen since there, you know it's not really a, a data problem, right? What it is instead is it seems to be a political problem, you know that we can't either call out the bad actors in our own party that are putting out you know or or in other parties that are putting out. You know the straw man nonsense statistics. Yeah, that, we have some on our side repeated. too. You bet. Both yeah. parties have them. Yeah. You know, and, and it it really is a is an issue. But I wonder if that that failure to reject those nonsense ideas now, where where we seem very you know much more partisan, much more against each other, is that a new steady state of affairs forever? Do we think, or is it instead? a temporary reaction to the current kind of political transition that we're in. You know, I I have argued consistently that I believe we're in the middle of a major party reshuffle that started in 2016. These reshuffles typically take about eight years. So I think we're maybe a little over halfway done. Maybe there's another four more to go. Typically takes eight years to a decade. And I wonder if there isn't on the other side of this Either candidates that are more broadly appealing across parties or a new set of party platforms that aren't as mutually intolerable or what it looks like. Because I don't think that this current mode of political incivility is permanent. It's a question as to whether it's sustainable too. And it's also kind of a a question as to did perhaps social media – bring us 
this divisiveness. You know, I have had a. Um, it's very an, possible. Yeah, pardon. I mean, it's very possible. Yeah, uh, well, I've had this pet project of mine for years of uh, identifying what media say about Republican, uh, quote unquote, statesmen, but Republican prominent Republicans when they die, and what they said about them when they were alive, and it's very different. They're very different things. What they said about John McCain and what they say about him now is very different than what they said about him when he was running for Senate re-election or for office. He was a racist and a bigot. Bob Dole is the most recent example. He was a racist. And you go back, Barry Goldwater was a racist. Uh, San Francisco Chronicle wrote that the 1964 political convention, Barry Goldwater's convention, had Mein Kampf as its Bible. You saw this same kind of language, this fascism language, this Third Reich kind of language against Republicans since the 50s. But what social media did, I think, is make it much more widely seen, viewed and adopted and accepted. Oh, absolutely. Right. You know, it, I mean, it, it, without social media, that was kind of a confined thing. Well, here's another weird thing that social media has done that maybe is at the at the the heart of our mutual inability to see the truth in each other's data or arguments. So one of the things that that has happened recently as a result of social media is that if you look at the population sliced into, say, 10-year tranches, right, you know, 18 through 28, uh, 28 through 38, yada, yada, what you see is that each slice has a widely different source and media diet online. So even if they're, right. even if they're on the same platform, right, right? right. even if we're all – let's talk about YouTube videos, okay. right? You know, Gen Zers are not watching the same creators that I am when they're looking for political or informative content. And I am not watching the same creators that 40-year-olds are very often and so on and so forth. And so we're all listening to completely different silos based upon our own little cultural zeitgeist. And what that does – is it prevents us from coming to a mutual understanding, sort of intergenerationally, about what is actually happening. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, might be part of some of the confusion and the eternal disagreement that we're seeing, where it, it, it seems like one side makes a claim, presents data, and the other side says, well, I don't buy your data. Right. Right. We're, because at that point, we're not even at the level of a conversation. We're just stuck at citing sources mm-hmm. and, and you can't get anything done there. The debates that were prominent in the academic community in the 1980s were about – well, the phrase was the Western canon, sometimes Western civilization or Western civ or Western civics. But the debate was about the canon and whether you know colleges particularly – and it's now floated down to elementary and secondary. But in that time – in our lives, it was colleges about getting rid of the canon, that we didn't need to have this regimented uh, or specific outline of things we should all be reading or we should all be taught about. It's a horrifying idea. Should, uh, or that we should all know. And I, I just wonder if once we got rid of that canon, we got rid of a certain level of mutual agreement and mutual conversation, a lingua franca a cultural literacy so that now we all don't have actually the same basis on which to have a normal rhetorical conversation. Might you want to speak on that? I'd love when to. When we come right back, we'll be right back.
Lewis Holman, uh, you wanted to respond to what I was saying. There was this interesting effort in academia to get rid of the canon, uh, and it, I think in some con- some were concerned that it would end our, our common knowledge, common cultural literacy, a lingua franca, if we weren't at least somewhat familiar with our common, shall we say, uh, common tradition, common heritage. Uh, and it seems in a sense that 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 has also taken place in our contemporary discussions. There's there's no as you were saying. There's no agree. We get into debate about the basics and the facts and the and the launching pads of the of the conversation and the debate. And we almost never ever get to the debate because right. no one trusts each other's it's, sources. No one trusts each other's citations. You tell me what you're thinking. Well, about. it's not about you know whether or not the data is accurate. Accurate. It's are we allowed to use FBI crime statistics when it comes to you know, solving policy questions. Um, exactly. I, I run into it all the time. You're absolutely right. So on this notion of the, the Western canon, um, I, I was lucky enough myself to get a very liberal arts style education, predominantly in high school. Um, Dad would be cheering, but he's not here right now, so we'll set that aside. Um, so a culture, in as far as I can really think to describe it, is really not much more than about 500 to 1,000 books that, that. We, that, that the members of the culture, if not have read, have been exposed to, whose stories and patterns they are familiar with, right? And want to read. Even if they haven't read them, they know they have a deficit having not read them. Right, right. So, so the idea, you know, why, why do you have a canon, right? The idea is that... You know, we in the West, our culture is is modeled on the actions and the philosophies and the archetypes embodied in in the canon that we read and discuss and learn and study. And so when we're in the business of editing the cultural canon or deciding upon a new cultural canon, what we're really in the business of doing is trying to shed one cultural identity for another. And here in the West, uh, particularly since the fall of the Soviet Union, I, I've been struck by the the idea that we have been really wrestling between two visions of ourselves culturally. And the first is sort of the classic Western canon, right? Uh, you know, the Aristotle, the, the Romans, all, all of it. Little Shakespeare, um, right, little, uh, right. little Mark Twain, little Lincoln, right, little founding. Du- maybe yeah. a little bit of Dostoevsky if yeah, you're lucky. Yeah, a little Dostoevsky, a little John Stuart Mill, yeah. Right, Uh but the alternate to this is this sort of international, we are the world, United Nations sort of culture that is looking to be as radically inclusive as possible and bring in you know, all ideas from all of around the world. I'm reminded um, of a line of Doug- Douglas Murray's, who you interviewed uh, a couple of months ago. And he was writing about the idea that we have in the 20th and 21st centuries that each ethnicity is sort of owed its own nation state in some sense. This was his perspective? It's a common position at least. It's not his specifically. Well, he was writing that that there's this sort of notion that follows everywhere around the world except for Europe Uh. and that Europe is for the world, at least in the modern conception, right? This notion that, that... that European or, or, or the Western identity should not have its own equal sort of sort of uh, uh, perch to sit on, right? Its own homeland, its own heartland, but that the concept of the West itself 
is outdated, is bad, and needs to go. And and this is incredibly disturbing to me. First of all, you know, the notion that that cultures benefit those inside them more. I mean, of course, right? If the culture didn't accrue benefit, why would we build the thing? Um, but beyond that, you know, we're as as we try to include more and more and more, you know, we water down those very central archetypes that give us any kind of definition and meaning, right? The idea of the sovereignty of the individual is a uniquely Western idea. And if we expanded ourselves, I worry we lose this. Hold the, this is such a big thing, and it gets us into a lot of places. Hold the thought. Let's pick up on that when we come back. Let me, um, let me go out with a quote from Milan Kundera. Is that a good Western writer? Let's do it. I think so. The first step in liquidating a people is to erase its memory, destroy its books, its culture, its history, then have somebody write new books, manufacture a new culture, invent a new history. Before long, the nation will begin to forget what it is and what it was. Kind of interesting. Let's pick up on all that when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Lewis Holman is our guest. We were talking about, oh, canonization in a lot of different respects, the Western canon and certainly, you know, even beyond academics, how we interact rhetorically and, and uh, politically uh, in uh, social interactions as well through social media. Lewis. So we were talking, I think, before the break. I I'd presented this notion of there being two cultures that are sort of at war within ourselves. There's the, the classic Western canon, uh, uh, the Western civ culture, and then there's this newer thing that seems to have emerged right around the time of the First World War with the advent of the League of Nations. You know, this, this what I would describe as like the international school, right? Mm -hmm. Very we are the world, um, you know, exclusion of any kind is a bad thing monotonically, um, you know. All of these sorts of things. and Cultural relativism was becoming bigger and bigger. Right. Absolutely. That, that as, you know, mutual citizens on this planet, you know, we can't judge another culture for what they do. All we and, have is a right. tradition. They may have an equally good tradition. Right. And, and, and so, you know, it's really this kind of international model, this international culture that, at least in my eyes, had really been very successful after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, particularly with the, the advent of things like the WTO and other, other large um, sort of international bodies to try and keep itself floating. But what's interesting about this sort of stretched international culture is that it is in some sense rootless. It falls apart when it is threatened. And I think the best example of this I've seen and what gives me a, a great deal of hope, in fact, was the reaction in about the first week after the Ukraine crisis began in that there seemed to be at the time a resurgence of the idea of ourselves as Westerners and the idea that that is something unique and special important and important and worth protecting, which I hadn't heard in a very long time. And so the idea, I think, is that this notion of a Western civilization is one that emerges and is strongest, as I think all civilizations and cultures are, in extremists or in opposition to an outside group. You know, you, you can look at 
countries all over the world and empires all over the world. And you can see that they define their cultures. They form principally over a period, typically about a century, of entrenched opposition to another ethnicity. So the Russians versus the Mongols created the Russian system. Uh, we see the uh, English system um, pull up after uh, the continental wars in Europe. We see uh, the Americans after the, the British invasion uh, and the Revolutionary War. Um, and so as we move into a world that is less artificially unified by a U.S.-led sort of Bretton Woods-style global order, as we move into a world with more regional power brokers, brush fire wars, and deglobalization and stability, I think that that is a much better greenhouse for Western civilization than the last 30 years that we've been living in. You know, it's interesting the uh, the way we get reminded of these things from time to time, which is, I think, a little bit of what you're, you're kind of touching on. Um, we were reminded of it in the first, as you say, first week of, of, of the Russian incursion, uh, invasion of, of Ukraine. Um, that there was a role for the West, if not the United States. We right. were still called the indispensable nation for that week, weren't we? Yes. For that week. And I don't know. Ukrainians are kind of still looking at us as that nation. I don't know if we are that nation anymore, if we can rise up to it. But we were reminded of it that way. We were reminded of it for about two months after 9-11. Of course, whenever there is something awful uh, that uh, that is an attack on us, we are uh, we, we we summon that. It's it's weird that it doesn't seem to have lasting power much anymore, but it is our allies more often than not, and our enemies that remind us of these things. Think about the protesters in Hong Kong a little over a year ago. They weren't marching with iconography from iconography uh, from other cultures or other civilizations or other countries. They weren't ma marching with the South African Constitution, let us say, or the Mexican Constitution. Right. No, no. They they were marching with ours. Exactly. And and, and right? they and and legions of people all over the world who vote with their feet every day to come to the United States and not China right. and not Russia right. and to a far lower extent places like Germany or right. the UK or others. Right. The sheer magnitude, the yeah. sheer magnitude of the queue to get in here, is about all of the evidence I need right. to conclude that we are about as tolerant and as open and as welcoming as it is possible for a society to be. Yeah, that we are unwilling to utterly lose ourselves and and shed all of the things that make us uniquely ourselves you know, is frankly where a lot of the argument comes. It's why, you know, what we're called racists and bigots for, for the notion that, again, the individual is central. We're, we're, we're racists and bigots. Let's, let's push that thought. We're racists and bigots for the notion that we believe what immigrants believe about us. Right. We're racists and bigots because we believe what uh, racial and ethnic minorities in other countries think about us. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of, I don't know if anyone's ever really quite put it together that way, but that is the ironic time we live in. And it goes so far here, the undermining of it, that, yeah, the canon's gone or, you know, in, in decisive respects, it's gone from pedagogy. But they didn't 
stop with the canon here. And all of this is homegrown stuff. Well, it really is. I, I this don't know is how all homegrown stuff. They I don't tried know to how change much our of the founding canon, date. I don't know how much of the canon is gone, Seth. Right? You know, we we come back to this. You know. It, it, it's sort of like the re, the retrenchment of Christianity over the last hundred years, right? That we, there are far degree. fewer. You can get a history degree in every Ivy League school in a, in America and not have to take an American history course. Well, there are fewer Christians than there were per capita than a hundred years ago, but the influence of Christianity over our thinking and our philosophy has not waned in the slightest. Oh, really? You don't think that we are a less Christian nation than we were, regardless of population? You know, we, we still hold that you are innocent until proven guilty. Do we? we? still hold— <laughs> Do we? <laughs> Thinking point, do we? All sorts of— you know. <laughs> We'll be right back. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. Lewis Holman, you and I were going back and forth at it. I think it's really maybe one of the most interesting discussions we've had, but I'll let you uh, take us out here, so sir. So you, you were uh, uh, pushing back on the notion I was presenting, yes, but let's see. Uh, so my argument is effectively that though the West is not taught – the Western canon is not taught in university, I don't know that it's necessarily getting weaker, at least that it's not taught as much, right? And And that – we seek to change it and modify it at some points. And the reason I think that is uh, is twofold. First, the Western canon was not done in 300 BC when Aristotle finished writing. It grows and it evolves with the times and the needs of the culture. Totally true. It's, it's very you know open to modification as long as we don't lose, I think, the overall idea. The second piece is this idea I was talking about with – Though the numbers of Christians in our society has declined, the role of Christianity in our legal, in our, in our, in our culture may in fact be greater. And I, I would look at a lot of the notions on the left, particularly those taking their roots in the social gospel of the late 19th century. You know, all of these woke ideas in some sense are an evolution of the idea that civilization has a soul and it must be saved, right? So – Though it, it, it's hard to trace the, the through line, there are lots of instances of Christian thought being, if not as powerful, then perhaps more powerful than they were. Again, the supremacy of the individual before the law and our equality before the law is a, is a fundamentally Christian idea. And so like that, I don't know that the West is out yet. Okay. We've just come back and become resensitized to a need for it. And I hope that after our political crisis, we can solidify that that need. And That's really beautifully said, and I have a feeling we're going to be discussing this for a while. Uh, it's raised a lot of thoughts, and you and I are on uh, on the same sheet of music, but not on. Well, we're on the on the, in the same concert, but not on the same sheet of music. How's that? You play the viola, I'll play the oboe. I'll play the trumpet. You play the flugelhorn. How's that? Perfect. Make your granddaddy happy. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Lewis Hallman. God bless you all. Until tomorrow, class dismissed. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.